Hey, this is Leslie. Before we get into the episode, would you mind doing me a favor? If you've listened to the first two episodes in this Warhammer 40,000 miniseries, I would love to hear from you. I've got a section on my website where you can give feedback, including text, or even upload an audio or video file. Would love to hear what you think, whether it's constructive criticism or something that made you angry or something that even made you feel good or happy. And hey, share your experience with Warhammer 40,000 or how this podcast is helping you see things differently. Go to niche2meetyou.show slash 40k. And while you're there, feel free to snoop around. You can even find a place to feed our team some pizza, for we are hungry. Thanks for that. All right, let's get to the episode. You're listening to Niche to Meet You, a podcast about the hobbies that will save our lives. This is the third installment of a profile on the tabletop war game Warhammer 40,000. We've learned how it's played and why it matters to those who play it, and today we meet the ones who made it. I'm Leslie, and it's niche to meet you. Before we meet the creators of Warhammer 40,000, the ones whose brains created a universe so big and so detailed all at once, I thought I'd ask those who intimately know this world what they would ask, what they want to know about this hobby of theirs from the ones who gifted it to them. Here are Josh and Marcus. We met them in the last episode. As I talk to these people who have been at the center of creation for this, you know, 40 years ago, is there anything I should ask them? What would you ask them? What would you try to get them to talk about? Is it even interesting that I'm talking to them? I think it's super interesting. 40K, more than like, I think Star Wars and some of these others, kind of prides itself on being extreme and taking numbers and sizes of things to, to the most extreme limit. And that's kind of what the setting is. And like, how did they kind of come to that? Because I don't know of any other universe really that did that in the past. I mean, as Marcus said, you know, it's, it's it takes the entire universe. And sometimes I, I want to say like on earth in this setting, there's like a trillion people or something. And all of the numbers are just ridiculous in every aspect. And there's like, they can tell you how big a tank is, how many treads it has, the number of pistons. Like it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Because they have it at a macro level and a micro level too. And the balance between those two things would probably be really interesting to hear a little bit more about, right? How do you balance understanding how many pistons a particular tank has alongside like this huge, massive, like universe spanning story, right? Um, I think for me, I'm interested in, I guess, like, I think from a story and lore standpoint, the hallmark of the 40K universe is that it is a, it's a universe without hope. There is no hope. It's very bleak. It's dark. There's just, there's nothing except war. That's kind of the only thing that exists, Wow. which I think was largely meant to be a precursor for you to have armies fight on the tabletop. <laughs> but I'd be curious how they've been able to manage the universe without hope for so long. Because hope is such an important part of every story that like, how do you manage telling this giant thing where you are basically saying there is no such thing as hope? The answers to these questions are found in things like history and commercialism, even. And they might just surprise you. Well, of course, I've not. Oh, gosh, that's Rosie. Come on, say hello. Oh, oh, this is Rick Priestley, creator of Warhammer 40,000, and his dog, Rosie. 
Rosie doesn't shed at all, I learned, and I also learned about the very beginning of this game and more about the mind who originated it. Once Rosie was sequestered, we settled into a conversation spanning time and space, multiple fictional universes of both fantasy and science, and drew cultural conclusions that led to this game played by thousands all over the world. And it all begins with a little game called Rogue Trader. You are where this all begins, right? Yeah, I guess so. In 1987, I think the very first version of um, uh, Warhammer 40k, also called Rogue Trader. Rogue Um, Trader, you say? Yeah, that was the very first version. And the the reason is, I'd originally joined Games Workshop with a a spaceship game, like a role-playing spaceship game called Rogue Trader, because it was about trading spaceships and raiding plants and things like that. And um, for years and years, uh, I, I was... I'd nurtured the ambition to get that game published. But over the time, it kind of morphed into uh, a tabletop 28mm fantasy come science fiction war game. So although it was published as Rogue Trader, because people were expecting it to have that title, they already mm-hmm. In the end, we realized we couldn't sell it under that title, and, and partly because we already sold a game called um, Rogue Trooper, oh. which was it's from a British comic. Uh, and so we ended up calling it Warhammer after the fantasy game. Warhammer is a fantasy tabletop war game based loosely around Tolkien-esque sort of, sort of themes. So you have orcs and goblins and elves and dwarves. And um, you have miniature armies made, you know, made up of these individual models. And you have a, a, a tabletop terrain, which looks a little bit like a model railway terrain. You know, it's got, got hills and woods and things like that. And they bat- the armies battle it out over this terrain for, uh, uh, really, usually just to see who, who uh, destroys the other one. You know, it can be more complicated <laughs> than that, but it right. really is. Um, and One Forty Thousand is the science fiction version of that game. In the day, back when I created it, it had the same core mechanics, and uh, it, it just had the same sort of creatures in it. It had orcs and elves and goblins, but under different names. What is it about your childhood and upbringing that brought you to that? I, I mean, uh, a, tip, a very typical 1960s boyhood, um, which is to say uh, toy soldiers, construction kits, model airplanes, uh-huh. um, and particularly things like the Lairfix figures, which people will perhaps know. know. Um, you know so all that sort of thing it, it was just common currency when I was growing up. And um, I always say the 1960s was, um, uh, was a time when World War II was big. You know, mm. all boys my generation knew uh, ridiculous details about the armaments and uh, and fighting men of World War II. So then it seems to me you have that sort of practical application of battle and then this fantasy in culture yeah. that starts to rise up in the 70s coming together. Yeah, that's it. I think that's a good good summary. In fact, that, that's, that culture started to rise up in the 60s with um, Tolkien in particular and The Lord of the Rings. Um mm. And it became a cult a cult book, really, in the 60s. And I read it. When did I read The Lord of the Rings? I must have been in my early teens. And like many early teenagers, you become obsessed by things like that, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's a book I've gone back to and reread many times. Tolkien himself, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, was drawing on long-told legend and the bitterness of the two world wars in his creation of Middle-earth, this vast fantasy universe of elves and dwarves and hobbits. And Middle-earth has inspired people like Rick, 
to look at the grim realities of war and make something creative and communal out of it with the help of people around them. One of those people was Andy Chambers, who started working with Rick at Games Workshop in 1990. I first got into science fiction and fantasy tabletop stuff primarily because of a a military modeling magazine that my dad put a subscription in for me because he'd been a modeler in the past and he was kind of interested in those things. And at that time, yeah, the Second World War was not very far away. You know, my granddad fought in it and I saw my granddad all the time and he told me stuff about it and so forth. And a lot of the uh, toys and books and games and comics were often revolved around World War II themes. They, They were very familiar to us then. And in the back of it, you could find adverts for very, very early kind of fantasy figures, often based on like movies and things like that. Very early D&D was being advertised through there as well, which brought uh, an entirely new thing onto the scene. So it was just starting to develop in the the late 70s, early 80s, when, you know, I was a teenager, basically. And I got in with that end of things. And I just loved it. Absolutely Mm -hmm. loved all the stuff about tabletop gaming and making miniatures and painting stuff and having games. Although most of the games at the time tended to be very crunchy, very numbers-based because they kind of came from a historical past where it was very important for them to be simulations and sensible and proper (sighs) and so forth, which meant they tended to be a bit dull, especially Mm. for a teenager or more into having something that moved fast and was fun and came to a resolution. So, And it got only more so once I got my feet under the table because they were the kind of games I liked and most people did as well really and then as you say Lord of the Rings kind of swung to the fore again in the 60s because hippies got into it Uh, so there was a fantasy line going on as well and then aside from that there was kind of a science fantasy thing kicked off by the moon landings and the space race in Mm -hmm. general so Mm -hmm. sci-fi was was cool sci-fi was very dominant at the time and like kids shows would often revolve around it. We had ones in the UK, Jerry Anderson shows like Stingray and Captain Scarlet, which were all very futuristic uh, and kind of cool. So we kind of came out of that and off the back of that to a large extent and, and music was changing and becoming recognizable. And there was a general sense of, of wanting to look forward into the future is why mm. futurism was, uh, was so in. So it was all very, coming out of a fairly staid kind of historical past and looking for something, you know, with more possibility to it, something that wasn't done and written already, a more creative kind of approach to things was quite a common theme, I guess, looking back on it. Another important factor in the creation of this game for both Rick and Andy that informs the tone and the structure of the entire universe is the cultural posture in the UK at the time, which is rooted in hundreds of years of history. Uh, I mean, we were writing at a time when we we were coming out of 18 years with the Tory rule in Britain, and that had been grim. Believe you me, I I grew up in it. And it was a whole whole succession of feeling like the, the state authority, like bearing down, taking things away. And that's reflected in the background for 40k of like you know dystopian future states and as brits we we always kind of believe that the future state will become dystopian just by default one of the most amazing things about media americans is how optimistic you guys are naively optimistic to our view an american dream is not as shiny as it looks but american americans can't understand how deeply cynical brits really are we're brought up to be you know 
cynical little citizens from day one. And a lot of the 40k background, particularly the depiction of the Imperium, was seated in that mm. weird sort of nostalgia for a time of great power because we've also had an empire in our time as well. So we, we know how grandiose it is to be able to parade your fleet around and stuff like that and show how powerful you are. And we've also had a history of like conflict with the, uh, the Catholic religion as well. So we know how powerful uh, major religions can be too from both ends of that equation. And all of that kind of get, gets rolled together. And I say a lot of the people working on the background before UK had at least some interest in history and certainly with the guys that I brought on board later if they didn't have it already I encouraged them strongly to look towards history because it goes back even beyond the British Empire when you, when you look back to the Greeks and the Romans you can find all this just fantastic texture and stuff happening that you would not believe sort of thing you just write it up and bingo bango you've got science <laughs> fantasy all over there. the place really <laughs> it's yeah. right there Warhammer is the marriage of dichotomies, logic and art, narrative and statistics, its macro and its micro. Andy's introduction of history into the Warhammer background hints at what Josh suggested I ask these creators about. Managing the tiny details within the vastness of the universe. How? How do you do this? It comes from this appreciation for and acknowledgement of history, starting with Rick. Tabletop war games, the sort of thing I've described, um, to a designer, they're an exercise in geometry and probability. Mm. So you have to have some kind of basic understanding of how those things work. But they're not complicated to a large extent. They're intuitive. Helps if mm. you understand how a probability curve works and how a, uh, how a bell curve works on 2D6 mm. rolls or whatever. But those things are not hard. If you roll two dice, everyone knows it's harder to roll two sixes than it is to roll two random numbers. You know, I don't know that everyone knows that, Rick. I wouldn't know that. <laughs> so, but you say all of that, and there's so much logic to it. But at the same time, the vastness of the universe is such an abstract concept. I think it helps that I, my background actually is, um, I wouldn't say it's sci- all that scientific. I've been accused of being a scientist, but I'm not. I, I actually studied archaeology at uh, huh. university. So that's where my background comes from. And to some extent, that's the thing that gives you a sense of deep history. So when you talk, when I talk about one forty thousand and it being forty thousand years in the future, and the Imperium being ten thousand years long, I have a sense of all that means. It's a span of human history that people can't really comprehend, mm. uh, and I always intend to be that long in order to to create whole cycles of civilization collapse and change within it. Really, I wanted to create a, a background that could be almost anything to give oh, what can I just want to call it almost like a playpen or a sand pit that's the word people use really so to Rick the macro and the micro come together naturally the macro is informed by history both his and ours and then Andy Chambers entered the picture in the 90s with the second edition of Warhammer and led the charge to build the micro the very first codex the first iteration of that huge magazine we learned about in the last episode with the stats and lore and illustrations, it began with Rick and Andy based off Rick's original work with Rogue Trader. Andy came in with a background of writing rules for another game in a box, the first of its kind, 
called Adeptus Titanicus. And they'd had some stuff that had come out that didn't have rules, and I was like suitably perturbed by this. So I just like wrote up some rules for the, the new units and uh, some background to go with it. And then basically just slotted in there and started getting work. And then the, the big deal was 93 when we did uh, second edition Warhammer 40k, because Rick got me into handle the rules and weapons sides of things. You know, he wrote up the background and uh, I did all the mechanical bits, which was an easy job in many regards because it was basically taking everything that had gone before and kind of like smashing it until it fitted into a container. Are you responsible for the microstat details? Yeah, I mean, Rick would block out, and they had blocked out already in Rogue Trader a lot of the stuff, and then it was down to like grinding out the, the variants of it and things like that, and weaponry the same. You know, a lot of this was ground that Rick had already trodden uh, in Rogue Trader, and it was basically turning what was really more of a role-playing sort of a system in a rogue trader into a, a more of a head-to-head battle game. So the material there was it was just a job of work to make it all make sense with each other, uh, have some common points, huh. values for things, that sort of stuff. Everybody having army lists that worked more or less the same way. So you're a world builder in the yes. details and statistics. Later on, uh, as we started doing the codex books for it, and Rick kicked off doing those in second edition, uh, he kind of did one for the Ultramarines and the Imperial Guard. But then there were a whole bunch of other ones that needed to be done for all the other armies. And each of those, you got an opportunity to you know, write a bit more history and background and events mm. uh, relating to the, the different alien races. Most of them were that came after that. So they were a lot of fun. I'm just curious to know how many like uh, figure options are there? In t- you know, like how many ca- characters? Is that the right? Well, for one thing... If you want to get into the terminology, characters are like one category of thing you can have. The idea being that they are like named characters. Mm. But then there's the kind of the spear carrier side of things, the the troops, as they're often called, or they might have specialist roles uh, within that. Uh, And they come in squads of anywhere up to like 20. It depends on what they are. Like Space Marine used to come in fives and tens. Space Marine. Space Marines. Sorry, Adeptus Astartes, as they're called now. Back in oh, the day, they were sh- called Space Marines. Well, subject to some uh, legal shenanigans, basically. Space Marines are too broad a term. Belongs to the world at this point. <laughs> so they have to call them Adeptus <laughs> okay, Astartes to make it like, you know, TM. There's an important dynamic to understanding Warhammer that until this point, we haven't properly named, haven't called out. It's a character in this story that's been lurking behind the curtain. It's that of business and commercialism. More about that coming up next. Hey, we'll get back to the episode in a second. But first, this is usually where people will ask you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your platform of choice. And I would love if you did that. It's super helpful. But you know what's more helpful is telling a friend that you like it. So what if right now you texted one friend and said, hey, I'm listening to this new show called Niche to Meet You. I think you'd really like it. You know what I'll even do for you? I will play music for the next 15 seconds before we get back to the second part of the episode so you can do it without missing a thing. Okay, ready? Here you go. Games Workshop has been mentioned several times already in this series. 
They're the intellectual property owners of the Warhammer brand. They originated the first iterations of the game while they had the exclusive Dungeons and Dragons distribution rights in the UK. And they've taken their role as IP owners seriously. The books aren't really available at regular bookstores. They're only available through the Black Library, which is Games Workshop's online store, and it sells many hundreds of the books of lore, the ones my husband reads. It's almost as if their protection of the brand is the very thing that's kept it out of the public awareness for so long in comparison with Dungeons and Dragons, which can be played and understood without a single purchase. Though, as Marcus and Josh talked about in the last episode, Games Workshop has started licensing out the IP to companies who are experts in other areas like video game developers and publishers. When talking to those who play Warhammer about Games Workshop, there's a sense of it being this all-seeing eye for the brand. Maybe for some, it feels too commercialized. Recall when Josh and Marcus mentioned new armies created just for new additions or rules being created just to drive sales, or, you know, there's an entire metal music label, Games Workshop launched in the 90s, which, despite claims to the contrary, was built entirely to push the Warhammer brand from album art to song content. Despite the grumbling, Andy Chambers says that this role of commercialism is an important one for the Warhammer universe. I gather from people I've talked to about Games Workshop, do you either love them or hate them? (laughs) (laughs) No, there's a lot of different facets to Games Workshop. I mean, there's Games Workshop as a business. There's Games Workshop as a retailer. There's Games Workshop as a creative force. And they all contain reasons why you might love them or hate them. Quite potentially both. It's a big creative business. And if you ever talk to somebody who's like, what, at Disney or something like that, or Pixar, Mm -hmm you'll find a very similar kind of equivocal sort of like, yeah, uh, it was great. That met great people there. There were fantastic opportunities. We created great things. But at the end of the day, you're embedded within an organization which is dedicated to extracting cash from people, yeah. uh, right. which is not a particularly noble pursuit in its own right. You know, well, it's, it's not a shameful one either. Yeah, it's exactly. It's where art meets colossus. And it's, it's always a bit of a rub. And part of that rub is what makes it magical quite often. You know, it's the artist being artist despite the commercialism and things like that. One of my favorite analogies to use is in Apollo 13 when they throw all the items on the table and they say, we have to fit this into this using these, you know, these sorts of like, here are our bounds and then the, and work within these bounds. And there's something about bounds that provide more opportunity for creativity. Yes. One of my nightmare scenarios with clients is when they say, oh, we could do anything mm-hmm. because it's not true. We can't do anything. We, for one, you've already got some idea of what you want to do, really. You're just not telling me what it is. For two, we've got the practical constraints of what we can do given time, money, opportunity, space, all the rest of it. So actually, you, you always want to start looking for those boundaries straight away because they do speed the creative process and make it focus in a way that's very uh, powerful, positive. Mm. Uh, There's nothing wrong with having boundaries. It's actually kind of essential. And the rub he talks about. Rick has a reason for this. And I think what happens is that people become emotionally involved with the Games Workshop hobby. That's their hobby. Their hobby. And Games Workshop then change something because they have to within a commercial environment. And what's happened is their hobby has been messed with by Games Workshop. So seen in terms of being a betrayal 
And it was always like that, even when I was designing stuff. And I always tried to facilitate the movement of the change from one, say, edition of Warhammer to another edition of Warhammer to make things easy for people who are already committed to change, to, to make minor adjustments to their armies or continue to play the armies they had or whatever. You know, Because I'm a gamer, I understand how these things work. I think the same thing happened to Bob Dylan in the 1960s, you know, hmm. when he suddenly took the electric guitar. Was it Newport Folk Festival? Yeah, he took out the electric guitar. And yeah, shouted, got booed off stage. Yeah. yeah. We don't like change, do we? And especially just something you've emotionally bonded to. And as hmm. I say, I think the reason why Games Workshop is such a powerful hobby is because it gives you the opportunity to bond with it on all of those levels I spoke about. Hmm. Hmm. Now, I've made a bold claim with Warhammer 40,000, that it's the perfect hobby case study. Not that everyone should play it or that everyone should love it or that everyone should talk about it, just that its framework, with its bounds and its complexities and its many ways of interaction, provide us with a real example of the vastness of the hobby and its benefits. And this thesis statement of mine has actually come from Rick Priestley himself. This is the thing about hobbies. A lot of hobbies are about craft they're about doing something with your hands which tends to occupy your mind but essentially they're craft hobbies and i would include amongst that things like knitting <laughs> making clothes painting you know traditional style painting making model kits some hobbies afford you the opportunity to do those things to a lesser or greater extent they give you the opportunity to develop skills now, you can be very skilled at some of these things to the extent that you can be uh, you know, always professional, professional artist, for example. And I would argue that within the Games Workshop hobby, you have a lot of that craft skill. So mm. a lot are attracted to it because they want to develop um, painting and modelling skills. And that can be painting and modelling of the models themselves that you buy, or it can be making of the terrain and the scenery, which people also do. Uh, so there's opportunities to exercise craft skills. But at the same time, there are also opportunities to um, engage competitive skills. Now, a lot of people would say their hobby might be playing chess or playing backgammon or Go or card games. And people can get very passionate about those things and they engage your mind in a very precise way. Well, war games have an analogous relationship to competitive games. You can play a war game in a competitive way. I want to win. And to do that, I have to be able to put, not just put this army together and paint it. In fact, I don't even have to do that. I could buy one. But I have to understand how the game works and I have to understand how to uh, maximize the potential of a force within that game. And there are... Strategy. There's strategies that are varied depending on what army you choose and then what how you build that army. So you're going to have mostly infantry, mostly tanks, mostly vehicles, whatever. You've also got an opportunity to simply socialise. Mm. And again, this is what most hobbies do to some extent. And it's it's akin to a coffee club or something. This is social. It's social. I always say the social aspect of, of wargaming is the most important thing. Mm. To me, the, what it's really about. But then personally, I'm pretty much game with my friends. So there are opportunities to get together, drink beer, push toy soldiers around and talk, excuse me, bollocks. <laughs> and talk nonsense. This reminded me of the times I observed Robert and Aaron 
at the game shop. It felt like a bar or a community space where everyone was known and welcomed and joined around a literal table for a common goal. Or sitting at a table close by painting or milling around at the front of the store talking about the stupid meaningless trivia that only people in that building would know. And that might be the most important dynamic of all the many that hobbies contain. If you've got a hobby that makes you think about that hobby when you're not doing it, and that's particularly the case when you're talking about, say, right, reading the fiction. So the fiction reading might be seen as a hobby in turn, right? But a lot of players who are war gamers who collect toy soldiers and paint them and game with them will also read the books. And it's just another way of connecting with the hobby. Because I know people who sit at work, or at school even, working out their ideal combination of an army, or thinking about what army they're going to play, or making a list of all the purchases they're going to be doing. So the hobby makes you think about the hobby when you're not doing it. And the more opportunity a hobby has or offers for that, the better that hobby is in a way, the higher it scores and the hobby points. A lot of the folks I've met might actually call Warhammer more like a lifestyle than a hobby. Thinking about the hobby seems to be the flip that switched here. Always when we're designing a game, I'm designing a game, Rick's designing a game, or what have you, we're trying to design a game which is relatively simple to play, which is why I say go play it, because it'll be a relatively simple experience. But the ideal game is like very simple to learn, hard to master. Not just because of what's happening on the tabletop, because of all that other stuff, those army lists that I talked about before, where you might have a choice of 20 to 25 different things to put into your armies in different amounts and different places to spend your points to get different forces. And that's where it explodes outwards and then you can play campaigns or what have you as well. And there's a lot going on once you get past the, the initial sort of like, this is how the game works. Uh, and that's why Games Workshop's a big business today yeah. because it doesn't just support that initial experience. It's not just pulling a, a box game off your shelf and playing it once. It's actually got all this other stuff, what I used to call toilet time. And it, what it means is thinking time outside of the game itself. Yeah. Homework. How much time, yeah. how much time, how much homework can you do in like creating your army, um, thinking about how it would work tactically and thinking about other potential things you can do outside of the immediate having models on the table, rolling dice, pushing them around. Now, is it possible that commercialism, this boundary that has led to the macro and the micro universe of Warhammer 40,000, has actually been an asset in the building of the framework for this perfect hobby? The business of it all creates the things that allow for us to talk about the hobby and think about the hobby outside of doing the hobby. Everybody's hobby, including yours, probably has some sort of tool or equipment that's informed or shaped by commercial forces. Robert himself even talked about the expense around hobbies, that even though many will criticize Warhammer and Games Workshop for how expensive it all is, it's no more expensive than any other adult hobby. These niche subcultures need infrastructure to survive because they pave the road to passion. It's a strangely emotional relationship. Remember all those things I talked about that make a hobby a hobby? Once you've actually really committed time to learning how to paint and how to model, and you've committed time to learning how these games work, and you've taken part in tournaments, and you've formed relationships with people that are all predicated upon these things, you've invested heavily and emotionally in the game, the background, the hobby. Everything's very... Uh, you can be really 
passionate about this thing. And with good reason, there's lots to be passionate about. But while boundaries of the creation of the work can be fuel for the fire, the corporate infrastructure and commercially driven decision-making and infrastructure can also harm by denying individualism to the creators themselves. The importance of individuals in the growth of Warhammer and Games Workshop, and I'm, I'm not talking about just me or Rick, particularly one of the designers, Jess Goodwin, who's still there, has been like a major force in shaping um, the look and feel and background of Warhammer 40,000 Universe. Likewise, John Blanche, uh, likewise, William King back in the day. And these are just people I work with directly that influenced me, and there are many others besides. And one of the things that makes me sad about Games Workshop these days is that they deny the individual. They don't credit people for writing books. They don't credit mm. people for sculpting miniatures. And those individuals will one day move on to have careers of their own uh, outside of Games Workshop. And I think they're doing them a disservice, personally. I skate by a lot because people know who Andy Chambers is from the 90s. So they recognize my name. And I, I feel for uh, the guys who are just as creative, more creative than I was, chiseling away there now, but doing it namelessly, facelessly, mm. on behalf of the giant corporation, which is truly the dystopian future we all feared, really. And I think it's a disservice to the fans because they, they love to know the individuals that made it all possible and things like that as well. So I think it's, it's taking away from just the creators and the fan base at the same time. And for what? It seems like that's why the Comic Cons and the those panels mm. are such an important part of the fan experience. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's true. And this is really where something like a niche subculture begins, with someone like Rick, who used history and passions to imagine a new world that eventually is imagined by thousands. And, and my job, more than anything, became to um, tie it all together. I was just a game designer, you know, I mean, when I started. So I'd write stuff and they'd go, oh, I'd like these uh, space marines. What do space marines look like, Rick? And I'm going... Well, I don't know. And I made a few drawings and people went, no, it's terrible. We could do better than that. And the, the model designers know how to make models. We were all, yeah, I mean, this rattled old man you see before you now, we were not like that when we were uh, building these things. You know, we were in our 20s. We were all in our 20s. Mm. Even the bosses were in their 20s. You know, none mm. of us were old. We were doing something that everyone thought we were crazy to attempt mm. to do. You know, the idea of being able to make a living writing about toy soldiers and making toy soldiers was, it wasn't credible we stuck at it because we couldn't do anything else so yeah i'm, I'm quite yeah i'm quite proud of it but i i don't i wouldn't claim too much personal uh, success you know it's not me that's made it that what it is it's other people to a large extent it was the guys that just stuck at it and had faith in it that uh, made it what it is on the next episode we ask why it all matters why this crazy attempt at a brand new fantasy war game written by a bunch of 20-year-olds in the 80s is relevant for us today. And we'll ask Rick and Andy about Marcus's lingering question, how do you create and maintain such a vast universe for so long without hope? And we'll explore how these individuals we've met, the Roberts and the Aarons and the Joshes and the Marcuses of the world, come together in community to find hope in this hopeless universe. This episode was produced by me, Leslie Thompson, with help from Chris Thiessen. The music you heard is by Abigail Flowers. If you like the show, write an honest review 
seriously, and tell a friend. And if you want to support us even more, buy me a pizza. See the show notes to learn how. Hey, it's me again. Really quick, I wanted to offer an opportunity for you to give feedback on this show. If you're listening and you are into this hobby, it's a part of your life, I would love to hear from you. Did we get something wrong? Should we correct something? We are totally open to doing future episodes with corrections, but would love to hear from the people who actually play it. So if you go to niche2meetyou.show and scroll to the very bottom, there is a section where you can supply feedback for a particular episode or hobby, and we would absolutely love to hear it. Thanks for listening.